First Samuel 18. First Samuel 18. That's over in the Old Testament. First Samuel 18. Hey, there's a bunch of weird stuff in First Samuel 18. It's good to be back. We've been gone for about a month and a half now due to the holidays and uh, other various um, uh, reasons. Um, not coronavirus um, related at all. Um, so to catch up, First Samuel uh, is about a little boy named, uh, there's a guy, guy named Samuel, right? And he was born of a woman named Hannah. She was barren to the point where she, uh, she pled for a child and God gave her Samuel. She turned him over to the work of the Lord at three, maybe five years old in that window. Um, that's the first recorded episode of a child dedication. Again, um, what we're, we're not necessarily dedicating our children when we do it, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Because we're not dropping it off for Lady Jane and Pastor to raise. Um, and that's what, uh, that's what Hannah did. And uh, Samuel grew up at a very early age, had what I believe is a face-to-face -face interaction with, not just once, but perhaps multiple times, with Jesus himself there in the Holy of Holies, where he instructed him on how to raise up uh, and be a godly young man and confront the wickedness of Eli the high priest and his two sons who were ultimately um, killed in battle. The Ark of the Covenant was taken in battle. We talked about that and how the Philistines who took it um, developed uh, hemorrhoids or, or some type of tumors and uh, golden and mice infested. Uh, that we argued several months ago that that could be perhaps the earliest historical reference to the one type of the plague, uh, pneumonic or bubonic plague. And, uh, and so they sent back the ark on a new cart with new ox and said, uh, uh, you ain't got to go home, but you can't stay here. And they put little golden mice and little golden tumors on top, and they sent them out into the nether sphere, and they wandered back into Israel. Uh, Israel celebrated the fact that the ark was back, and they turned to Samuel and said, we want to be like everybody else be, and so you need to give us a king. And Samuel said, you don't want a king. Uh, you, you don't want one. Uh, they'll take your women. They'll take uh, your sons. They'll take your property, and uh, they'll do all of these things to you, and then they'll tax you for it. They'll tax your income, and they'll tax your income's income, and your compound interest, and all the other things that's happening. Uh, they said, well, we, we really, really do want a king. And so they, they appointed Samuel, appointed by God's leading, Saul to be the king. Saul was a, a weak king. He was religious in nature to a point, but he really, didn't, he really didn't have a strong relationship with God. And that's kind of borne out uh, on a couple of different fronts. He won a couple of early battles and then rejected God's plan in his life to the point where God says, you reject my plans, I'll reject you. Samuel sneaks off to a little town called Bethlehem and anoints the seventh son of Jesse, um, whose name is David, anointed him secretly to be the replacement king, but didn't tell anybody. And then the story progresses to where Saul goes out to battle with the Philistines, and uh, there is one large warrior named Goliath, and no one wanted to face. And 1 Samuel chapter 17 is that story. David confronts the, the giant, slays him with a sling stone. And as we argued a couple, well, at the end of our study back in November, December, 
uh, argued that uh, David was being used by Saul as a diversion um, uh, to put his, so, his troops in line on one of the flanks. And then when he went out to fight Goliath, when David died, he was going to crush the right flank of the Philistines and try to fight, the, fight the, the battle that way. And lo and behold, to his shock and surprise, David really knew how to get ahead in the military and uh, knocked uh, Goliath out with a stone and then killed him with the death blow from Goliath's own sword. The Philistines were put to flight, and they run back home, and Saul declares a, a great victory. I want to remind you at this point that there's been a number of small victories of Israel over some of their enemies in the surrounding territories. And when you win a battle, you get to take the field. When you take the field, you get to strip the armor off the soldiers, their weapons, their food, their women. Everything gets to come home with you. So by the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 18, the Israelite army as we know it, it's not a standing army, it's a, it's a, it's a we'll call it a fluid militia, right? Uh, they're now, they're kind of a ragtag group of, of armed citizens, uh, but they're now armed and typically armed well now because they have defeated the Philistines on a number of fronts. So they've got Philistine weapons, they've got Philistine armor, um, I don't know what they did. Maybe they put, you know, special Israelite symbols on them to make, make them theirs. Probably did some custom, you know, artwork, uh, put it out on Etsy, and just kind of did some swapping and made sure that it looked Israelite-ish, all right? And so uh, we now have this growing military threat. They're not strong, but they're scrappy, right? And First Samuel 18 begins this way. Now, it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, David and Saul the king have just finished the metal-pinning ceremony of killing Goliath. Um, and it says that the soul of Jonathan, who is Jonathan? Saul's son. Saul's uh, son, the heir to the throne, this is Prince Jonathan, was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. A um, couple of things real quick. There are some who argue that Jonathan and David had a homosexual affection. That is not intoned anywhere in this scripture. Anybody who's ever served in the military and you have endured intense conflict next to somebody, you know how close that relationship can become. It is not hard and it doesn't take very long to develop a I'll die for you, you die for me relationship in a conflict scenario. Um, in some cases, it just takes uh, days or maybe even just one event, and you can find two individuals that will literally move heaven and earth to save the other. Um, and, and this is what happened. Jonathan, standing at the right hand of his father, King Saul, watches and puts his people in place, and he's going to, when David falls, he's going to attack, and then David doesn't fall. Goliath does. Saul crashes the flank, that's my opinion. Uh, he led a third of Saul's army. Uh, I'm assuming he took that right flank. He was a, a very keen warrior himself. We have evidence of that in previous chapters. He would sneak off and whip Fanny uh, and then come back. Jonathan is a warrior prince, future warrior king. And he sees something in David that he just absolutely loves. And when David speaks, Jonathan listens. And when Jonathan speaks, David listens. 
and they become the best of friends. I would probably say, I'd probably argue there's an age gap here of no less than five, maybe as many as 10 years. But in many ways, David is, is Jonathan's little Padawan. He's my little buddy. But man, when I'm in a pinch, when I'm in a fight, I know who I want on my, on my six. I know who I want in the fight with me. And so it was, verse 2, that Saul took David that day and did not let him return to his father's home. We remember that early on in Saul and David's relationship, Saul was tormented. He would get into these paranoid, almost, he, I don't know if he was schizophrenic or if he had a, uh, a, a chemical imbalance or if he was bipolar or he just had a real spiritual conflict going on. It could be all or, or none of those. And, um, and they would call in musicians, of which David was one of. And David had become his favorite musician. When David played the guitar, Saul really kind of chilled out. He played the harp. Um, uh, and, uh, and so he would go back and forth to the shepherd fields and then come back and play for the king. So he was kind of out on loan. Uh, he was in the musical reserves, I guess you would say. Um, and he'd go do drill weekend and he'd go back home. And, but now after he's killed Goliath and he's starting to gain some notoriety and, and Saul looks over and notices that his son and David are best bros and that David is advantageous to have around him all the time, he sends back home to Jesse, the dad, and goes, I'm just going to keep him. King's prerogative, executive powers. He's now, he's now one of my people. And then verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now that's uh, a very undercooked text. And by that I mean there's a lot in there that we don't see. Uh, you don't just randomly find a guy you like and make a covenant with him. Time has passed. There is some seasoning. There is some relationship marination. They've spent some time in the field. They've spent some time at home. They like the same video games. They like the same kind of drinks and food. They're, they're getting this relationship where they really just like being around each other. And at some point, Jonathan realizes, you're my best friend. You know, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna keep you, and then you're gonna be my boy, and uh, and we're gonna be tight, because look what he says here in verse four. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. What robe would that be? Yeah, his princely robes. And he goes, you, you're me and you. When people see you, they're gonna think Jonathan, and when people see Jonathan, they're gonna think David. And so we have this almost foreshadowing of what is to come. Uh, Jonathan is the heir to the throne. But now when people see David walking around, it wouldn't be hard for them to assume what? He's going to be the future king. So uh, there's kind of some foreshadowing going on, but then he does something even more significant. He took off this robe and gave it to David with his what? Armor, including what? His sword and his bow and his belt. Um Earlier in 1 Samuel, before all the conflict with the Philistines developed, we were told that there were only two swords in all of Israel. I would probably argue that that was uh, uh, symbolic language to say that only a few of the fighting men were armed, right? Um, not necessarily that the whole army had two swords. Um, I think we almost see that as disproved in the next few verses when Jonathan goes out to fight the Philistines with his armor bearer they clearly were armed at some point. So I'm thinking that it's a very limited supply of arms. And Jonathan gives his beautiful sword, the ornate one. 
You don't. The, the, by the way, the, the swords you carry, you would carry into battle, weren't the swords that you wore to dinner parties, right? Um, they're they're class A's. They're dress blue, so to speak. Uh, they had fancy swords that had gold covered, you know, filigree and jewels, and you wouldn't carry that into battle for a lot of reasons. If you left your you lost your grandma's rubies on the battlefield because you're whacking some heathen or pagan in the head with it, she'd be angry at you, right? So you, you have your battle sword, and then you have your show sword. I, that, I think this, this is what Jonathan trades out. He's like, when people see you, they're going to think me. And when people see me, they're going to think you. Uh, that's how close they were. Verse 5, so, so David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, Verse 5 is an opinion-based statement, but I, I'm going to show you why I think that in a minute, but uh, of this in a minute, but set David over the men of war. There are two general groups of people in the military. Can anybody tell me what those two general groups are? Officer and enlisted. All right. Now, in our modern uh, war, it's, it's a little different, but uh, what, what were office, how did an officer get his rank? Does anybody know? You would actually have to purchase it or be given it by a ruling authority. We have the term NCO. What does NCO mean? Non-commissioned officer. That's the enlisted side of the house. That's the guys with all the stripes, guys and gals. What's the other side? If it's a non-commissioned officer, what's the other side? A commissioned officer. David, I think here, is elevated over the enlisted men, so to speak, right? Um, he is given this, this posture. You're going to go out into the field and fight. You're going to be the one that leads the people. And I think he's kind of elevated to uh, sergeant major or chief master sergeant, whatever branch you may uh, know best. Uh, he's kind of he's put on top of the heap. He's, uh, he's not necessarily an officer just yet, but he's put over the fighting men, and uh, look what it says in verse 5. It was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Saul's servants should be read Saul's bureaucrats. His interior level of, of, uh, of, of dudes that do stuff. These are the politicians. These are the, uh, the aristocrats and the bureaucrats and the levels of the red tape of government, right? And wherever David showed up, man, they just liked him. What a great guy. When you give something to, for, to David to accomplish, bro gets it done. And um, David was a good fighter. He was a good, he was a good warrior. Verse 6, it happened as they were coming with, uh, when David returned from killing the Philistines that the women, you can read that uh, uh, in the original language, it literally means the virgins. The virgins came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing uh, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And they sang, the virgins sang as they played, and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now let's talk about that. Why would, why would it be, why would, why would the Bible need to specify that the virgins came out when the men came home from war? All right? What does a woman look for in this day and age? What's one of the primary uh, objectives? A husband that what? That can provide and protect. Um, 
what's the high probability of the men coming home that they have both provided and protected their own life? That both, right? Uh, when you won a, a battle in those days, they didn't have payday on the 1st and 15th, right? Whatever you took on the field, um, they would divide it amongst yourself. And uh, if you fought really, really good, I mean, it was a good day for you. Man, you were just slaying. And I got, I got like, I killed like five dudes, but you killed like 50. Well, they we would divide the spoils, and you would get the, the percentage of who took the field that day. So the wealthier of a soldier you were was a clear indication of how good or how much honor you had in that particular battle. Okay, does that make sense? That's not, that's, that doesn't even include the five aspects. If you actually saved my life, I'm giving you my cut. Correct. I mean, and speaking of side action, this is why the virgins come out. Okay? <laughs> right? Uh, so, all right. So this is in the Bible. I'm not making it up. Exactly. So not only they're not guessing either when they come out. It's already been found out that you know, you know. Hey, you know how many guys? You know how many guys gave him their cut? Absolutely. 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 And so it's pretty clear who boss daddy is in a given battle. Okay. It's pretty clear who 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 is taking the victory, and the king rides by, and the virgins. It's okay that they take interest in the king. I mean, he's the king, right? You want to get, but we're not real interested in the king because clearly he's already spoken for. And if I go and be another part of his harem, that's all I'm going to be. But David, he just got on the cover of GQ uh, as as America's or Israel's most eligible bachelor, right? And they're like, well, we're going to hit our tambourines really good. He is, mm, he is one fine piece of man um, to the point where it says Saul has slain his thousands, but David, he's ten times better. All right. Now, that was not to, to David's advantage because it says, verse 8, Saul became very angry for, for this saying displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they've ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom. And all of a sudden, this dark, brooding spirit invades Saul's mind and soul, and he becomes this uh, almost mumbling, uh, angry, just, ugh, yeah. He's going to take away everything I've got. He's going to take away the kingdom. Good grief, he already looks like the prince. Look at him. He's got Jonathan's robe. He's got Jonathan's sword. Oh, my gosh, even my son has given up on me. And now the women, the women like David better than me. What more could David have but the throne and the crown? Verse 9, and Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. He's got a target on his back. Yes? Hadn't Saul already been told that his lineage would end with him? Yes. Yes. He, he had saw Samuel, the prophet, had already told him that God was ripping the kingdom from him. So guaranteed... Saul's been looking for this fella for a while, and all of a sudden he sees it. And it's clear that the hand of God is on him, right? It's clear that the hand of God is on him, and this bothers Saul tremendously. Uh, verse 10, Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house. Anybody have an issue with that? Any, got any questions, thoughts, concerns, any kind of weirdness going on there? When y'all ask for a spirit of God to come upon you, what are you usually, what are you usually looking for? A good one, right? And what does the Bible say God sent? 
Is that a bad one? Uh, what is this? What is this? What? What, what is this? Uh, this is not just one occurrence that happens in the Old Testament. It actually happens a couple different times. And you need to look at it from this perspective. Um, God sits at the head of all kingdoms. But in the heavenly realm, he sits in what we'll call a great courtroom. And in that courtroom, there are plenty of high-ranking spiritual beings. Call them angels, call them demons, whatever you need to kind of fit into your understanding of, of God's word. Um, you got Gabriel and Michael and all these archangels over here. I guarantee you that the, that the enemy, Satan himself, has his spot at the table. And there are evil spirits all along the way. Um, we see evidence of this in the Old Testament book of Job, where God says we're going to test Job, how we're going to do it. And one of the demons or one of the evil spirits or one of the spirits in the room speaks up and says, I got a plan. And God says, uh, all right, execute. So uh, think of it this way. In terms of a military organization, there is a commander. And what the commander says goes. And you can advise the commander. You can beg the commander. You can plead with the commander. You can give options to the commander. But at the end of the day, the commander's going to do what the commander wants to do. And God is at the center of the table, and he says, okay, Saul's out. David's in. How's this going to look in the history books? And maybe Alan, he represents an angel over here, and he goes, I, I got an idea. How about this? How about just Saul passes in the night? He just dies. Jonathan, in his benevolent spirit, says, you know what? David's a good guy. Let's just give him the kingdom. And God goes, nah. I like the tenderness of that plan. It's very graceful and loving. I'm looking for something a little different. And, uh, and then Malcolm sits over there in his black coat and goes, I got an idea. Let's, <laughs> let's drive Saul crazy. All right? So crazy that he's going to try to kill David uh, and, and we're going to get over this, and it's going to be messy and nasty and gross. And God goes, yep, that's what we're going to do. Who is the author of evil? Black coat. Who's the commander? It's God. God does what he wants to do in the way he wants to do it. Okay. God is the writer of history. He allows a lot of freedom in that. Okay. Um, uh, A.W. Tozer once talked about the will of God. He talked about it like a cruise ship. He says a cruise ship leaves England sailing to New York. On that cruise ship, you can eat whatever you want, do it. You can play shuffleboard, go to the casino, go out on the, on the deck, sun, suntan. You can do whatever you want, but the cruise ship is going to New York. This is essentially what God's saying, is David's going to be king. Saul is going to be out. They can, play, they can move the chairs on the deck all they want, but this is getting accomplished. And I think this is what's going on here. And so God commands this evil spirit. Uh, he says, all right, work your plan. Do your best, bro. And so uh, down goes the evil spirit. Uh, now, it came about in verse 10, the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. He raved in the midst of the house. He is raging. He's throwing stuff. He's tearing his grandmother's picture off the wall. I'm ashamed. You know, he's, he's doing all these terrible things. And while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. So this isn't a, 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 a repetitive action of David. He is often playing the harp. And uh, normally it, it chills him out. But this day, David is playing and the spirit is upon him. 
And Saul recognizes the spirit. He recognized the peacefulness. He recognizes uh, the joy of which David is playing. He once had that spirit rest upon him, and it angers him. And Saul takes a spear. By the way, you'll not, we won't find Saul without a spear. He'll put his back to the wall, and he sits there with his spear, and he is paranoid from this point forward for the rest of his life. Wherever he goes, he rarely, rarely exposes his back to harm. And he never knowingly exposes his back to harm. So he's sitting there, and he's angry. He's just raging, and he's got a terrible headache, and this stupid harp player won't shut up. And he looks over, and it's David, and he's already had the thought, David wants the kingdom. And he takes a spear, and he throws it. Uh, verse 11, Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence. What's your Bible say? Twice. What in the world? I mean, the chaos that that must have, have happened. I mean, I want you to place that in your work environment. Your boss comes into your office and starts trying to kill you. Like, I would just leave. Like, I just get in my car. I'm going home. All right, one shot. Mm-mm. David is trying to hide. He's trying to, like, I got to stay low, right? But he had twice. Saul tries to kill him twice this way. Uh, and he's like, okay, I think I'm just going to bounce. Saul calms down to some point. Maybe this is a couple days or a couple weeks. His, his staff gets him calm. Verse 12, now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as commander of a thousand. All right, so he was a senior, my opinion, he moved from kind of a senior enlisted leadership role. Now he's going to make him an officer, right? You're going to command a thousand. Um, we call it below the zone when you promote fast, or we call it fast burners, right? Uh, where you promote very quickly up the ranks. Uh, it's really cool when you make rank really quickly, but what's one of the biggest problems? Lack of respect from the Okay. Potential lack of respect. What about you personally? Okay. You don't always know what you're doing. Uh, so I've been sitting as a major in my role for a couple of years, and someone asked me, when are you putting on lieutenant colonel? And I said, I've got some more stupid things to do as a major. Right? If you've got to learn the lessons of your rank appropriately. You, as a captain, as a lieutenant, you can make some dumb stuff happen, and people are like, I said, it's just a lieutenant. Don't, hey, don't worry about it. The lieutenant colonel, the general, makes those mistakes. People die. Okay? So what does Saul do? He takes him from a small role of combat and puts him in charge of a thousand fighting men. Not just a thousand fighting men, all the resources that go along with that, the logistics to feed them, the armors to, to arm them, all the things that go with that. David is probably in charge of no less than 5,000 people on foot as he goes from one conflict to the next to make sure that they're watered and fed and protected and supplied, all of those things. That's a lot of responsibility for a kid who just left the shepherd field. You follow me? So what is Saul doing? He's setting, him, he's setting David up for failure. Check this out. He appointed him as a commander of a thousand, and he went out and he came in before the people. And David was prospering in all of his ways, for the Lord 
was with him. And when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. He set him up for failure, and everything he did, he succeeded at. Uh, this is a fun little story. Michelangelo, y'all heard of him? Not the Ninja Turtle, the artist from the Renaissance period. Um, so Michelangelo, I think history tells us he was pretty kind of, he liked to be by himself. He liked to be focused on his task. And uh, uh, there was a competing artist of the day. He was kind of like the artist in residence for the Pope. And uh, he was very good. He was a very good sculptor. And uh, he was a good artist in his own right. And he hated Michelangelo because all in all, he wanted to be the only guy going. But Michelangelo's up here on his back day by day painting the Sistine Chapel. And he's like, I hate that guy. Man, every time I turn around, people give me compliments about how great Michelangelo is. I'm the artist in, in residence here. And the, the Pope um, commissioned a, a big stone sculpture piece to go over the altar at St. Peter's Basilica. And uh, the artist in residence, you'll forgive me for not knowing his name. Do you know who I'm talking about? I think it could be. That sounds very familiar. Um, he, he declines the offer knowing that the Pope will turn to Michelangelo. And Michelangelo to this point is a painter, not necessarily a sculptor. Okay? He's got, he's got some sculpting skills, but he's not really done this just gigantic... Uh, uh, piece of sculpting, especially not for the Pope. And he turns down, he says, why don't, you try, why don't you try Michelangelo? And so Michelangelo takes a break from painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling and creates this altar that blows the Pope away. And it's one of, one of Michelangelo's crowning, crowning achievements as an artist. And it, it just burned this guy up. He's like, dead gummit. Everywhere, everywhere we give an opportunity for David to fail, he succeeds. Right? And the same kind of situation is happening here. The people above David should be protecting him, but they're setting him up for failure. But every time the Lord protects and he advances. Verse 17, and Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Merab. Now, back before he killed Goliath, Saul had promised them no taxes, promised great reward, and you get to marry my daughter. And David's like, cool, right? So he goes out and kills Goliath. No one was expecting that. And uh, now it comes time. Uh, some scholars and commentators say it was about a two-year period from the time he killed Goliath to the time he should have married Merab, uh, the, the daughter of, of Saul. But there was a dowry involved. Um, that is, the, the groom had to pay the father of the bride a price. Now, uh, I'm going to be quite honest with you. Uh, in, in our context, we really don't understand this. We get our wives for free, and then we pay on them the rest of our lives. Uh, most cultures buy their wife up front, and then they, they, you know, they get the services of their wife perpetually without. I mean, that's just part of how it works. Um, so there was a dowry expected. How much do you think the dowry was for the king's daughter? Pretty high. Uh, look what it says here. Here is my older daughter, Marab. I will give you her to you as my wife, only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battle. For Saul thought, my hand shall not go against David, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel 
that I should be the king's son. David declines the king's offer. I'm not smart enough to see the folds of this, uh, but every commentator, every comment, every commentary I studied on this said that inherent in this conversation is a price negotiation. David can't afford the king's daughter. All right, and he's basically saying, "I'm a I'm a poor shepherd from a poor family in Bethlehem." We're not that big of a deal. I don't have that kind of asset to throw at the king's daughter. I can't be promoted to the word valiant men. I can't go from being a commander of a thousand to being one of the chief of staffs. I can't be a general. I can't afford the buy-in price. I can't afford that commission. I don't have the money. And to be quite honest, you've been trying to chuck spears at my head, so maybe that could be a reason too. All right? Um, verse 18, but David said to Saul, who am I? What is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at the time, uh, uh, when Merab, Saul's daughter should have been given to David. She was instead given to Adriel, the Meholethite for a wife. So instead of going to David, as it was promised, he married the Saul marries his daughter off to someone else who could afford the price, all right? Okay, well, all right, that's cool, that's cool. Could there be something else going on? Well, it's funny you would ask. Verse 20. Now, Michael, Saul's other daughter, I'd probably say the cuter, younger one, right? Loved David. Boy, she had a crush. It was like K-pop in town, you know what I'm saying? Like, like she's like, ooh, he is such a handsome man. Uh, he's just a good-looking fella. And I like him, and I've heard so many good things. And uh, after all, he was going to marry my, my sister, and uh, he turned my sister down, which I don't, I, you know, I only have one sister, so the sibling rivalry, what, she and I are so different. We didn't have that kind of sibling rivalry. But I imagine that similar siblings, like, uh-huh, I'm better than you, right? And if, if he didn't want you, then you know, maybe I could prove to you how great I am by marrying him. And, and so anyway... When they told, when his people, the bureaucrats, told Saul, hey, your daughter loves loves David, the thing was agreeable to him. So Saul thought, I'll give Michael to David that she can become a snare to him. Read that as a spy. I'll marry the pretty girl off to David, and she'll be in his bed, and he'll tell her the secrets, and I will know David's weaknesses and his problems and his issues. And, uh, and if he tries to do any shenanigans, like overthrow the kingdom, I'm going to know first. This is a great plan. We're going to execute it. Um, and I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David, for a second time, you may be, the son-in-law to, you may be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you. And all of the servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants, they spoke these words to David, again, privately. See, before, um, they were maybe in the throne room. And Saul says to David, marry my daughter. And he rejects the king publicly. Now what does he do? He says, I'm not going to have that happen again. So he goes down privately and goes, hey, look, everyone thinks you're just the cutest little thing. You're cute as prom date. And uh, Michael, you know, the Saul's daughter, you know, she's real pretty. 
and uh, she likes you too. And uh, look, hey, look, we're doing this offline. I'm not even sure the king would agree to this. But if you can handle it and you can see yourself being the king's son or son-in-law, hey, let's, 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 let's uh, make a deal right here. Verse 23. So Saul's servant spoke these words, but David said, Is it a trivial thing in your sight to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and I'm lightly esteemed? Right? Uh, the servants of Saul reported to Saul according to these words which David spoke. He said, sounds like he's going to reject you again privately this time. Before it was public, this time private. We can't let this get out. And Saul said, what is the one thing that David hates and loves at the same time? Let's think about this, guys. Let's get our heads together. Let's talk about this. And someone says, he hates Philistines. Hates them because they defy the living God. They're, they're uncircumcised. They're filthy human beings. And he loves killing He's a killing machine. And Saul says, I got it. This is the dowry price. He doesn't have to pay cash. He can pay in the lives of Philistines. Now, you have to have proof of life here, proof of death. Now, in, in something called the Ramesseum over in Egypt, um, it's where Ramses the Great, his tomb is. And, uh, and there are reliefs, as like carvings in the stone that tell the story of this great king, Ramses. And there are three pa panels in particular at the Ramesseum where the king is in his traditional smiting position. Um, and uh, there are... <laughs> All right, there are just baskets of stuff at his feet, okay? Uh, in the first basket, there are hands, okay? Right hands. And uh, so how would you know that you killed 10,000 people in a battle? How would you know to record that? Well, as you finished the battle, you took the field, your soldiers or the follow-up, you know, clearing of the field, they would raise up the pinky, cut off the hand, throw it in a basket. And then back home, they'd start counting. One, two, three. And the enemies of Ramses accused him of going, you didn't... You didn't kill 10,000 men in battle. Look how tiny those hands are. You killed women and children. You're a pansy. You're not a real warrior. Uh, and so the next relief, the next panel in the Ramesseum, and if you ever get a chance, go to Egypt. This is factual. It's a, it's a basket of penises um, because clearly we're, it's not women and children, right? Here's, a, here's the basket of penises to prove it. Um, so when Saul says to David, give me a hundred foreskins, um, it was, it was imagery language, right? He's saying the Philistines are the only people in the entire Mediterranean world that don't circumcise the, the Hebrews circumcised a particular way. Other cultures, the Egyptians circumcised a different way. Um, uh, but the Philistines didn't. And so he says, go get them. Saul didn't send David out to go subdue and tie down a hundred Philistines and circumcise them with the precision of a rabbi. Are you following what I'm saying? He said, go kill them, cut off their penises, and I'll know if you bring me back a hundred penises. Um, so, um, 
It's in the Bible, okay? I'm not making this up. I wouldn't just bring this up for, for, for kicks. You know what I'm saying? So... Verse 25, Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry, no money down. Buy now, pay later. They desire no, no dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. All right, oh, it's, oh this is a two for one here. He'll either win or he'll lose. Go out and get me a hundred foreskins. And when the servants told David in verse 26 these words, it pleased David, mm, it's weird stuff, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. He says, that's a price a brother can pay, all right? Um, before the days had expired, there was a season, perhaps it was two months or six months, he was given a time to come up with this price. David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down how many? <laughs> 200 men among the Philistines. And David brought back their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Now, so you're the accountant for the king, right? <laughs> and they're like, all right, what was the price? One, two, eight. Don't, do not lose count. Please, two, three, four, 99. No, no, no. A uh, hundred. And, and the, the king's like, all right, we're, we're good. 101, 102. <laughs> Stop, David. Gross, dude. Um, David had a little bit of showboat in him. All right, we're, we're seeing evidence of that. He said, I'll pay the price, and just to prove my worth, I'm going to pay it double. And so he brings... Two bags of foreskins, penises, to his, to his, his, yeah, it was, it was, uh, man. So you, you, you talk to people who say the Bible is just full of good stories. You bring them to Saul, first Samuel 18, and go, that is not a good story. That do not tell that to your grandkids. Uh, this is terrible. Uh, so he did this, and so Saul gave him Michael, the daughter, for a wife. How do you explain that to the children? Like, so mom, Aunt, 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 uh, Aunt Reba, she got a hundred head of cattle and goats and a golden ring. What'd you get? 200 foreskins from the Philistines. Like, okay, mom, let's not talk about this ever again. So when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus, Saul was David's enemy continually. And the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened <laughs> as often as it happened as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. It's one thing for the word to get out. Hey, be careful of David. He is a sharpshooter. He can hit you from a distance. He'll crush your skull. He'll embarrass you. He'll take, your, he'll take your head off your shoulders. It's another thing altogether to have the reputation of going to battle with David. And if you lose, bro, you lose. Because he may just cut off more than your head off your shoulders. Um, David is developing into this tragically terrifying warrior 
And, and God is going to use this season of David to begin to set him up for success, even as the carnage of blood bloodshed begins very early in David's reign.